We are going to be in, uh, in John chapter 4 yet again. And so we've been having this conversation about belonging, and we've been just working through this story of this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman at the well. And, uh, and so we've just been working our way through. And uh, so if, you're, if you did not bring a copy of Scripture this morning, you can, you can grab that Bible in front of you. There should be one close by and turn to page 984, and you can follow along with us in Scripture. And uh, we'll just pick up the story where we left off last week, and I'll, we'll, we'll kind of catch ourselves up to speed and what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Before we do, one of the things I neglected to mention was that uh, grab a shoebox. They'll need to be returned back two weeks, two weeks from today. Now, you can bring them back any time between now and then, but the deadline for drop-off when we'll collect for collection week and all that will be two weeks from today. I believe that's uh, November 19th, I think, is the date there. But you know, just a couple things that I want us to be reminded of as we move into our text this morning and just pick up the story where we left off last week. Um, but what we've seen in this is that Jesus used his in-between for the eternity of others. And these are just some of the things that Pastor Tony has talked about over the last couple of weeks, and it's important for us to understand. And so uh, on his way from Judea to Galilee, uh, he had to go through Samaria. And so he used his in-between and he did this over and over and over again. And he does this here with the woman at the well in Samaria. And really what we see is we see Jesus intentionally um, seek out this Samaritan woman and uh, someone who's an outsider. Uh, and, and he intentionally seeks her out and gives her a place to, a place to belong. So let's, let's just recap what we've read over the last couple of weeks. So let's read. Let's start in verse 1 and we'll, we'll catch ourselves up to speed. Okay, so in verse 1, chapter 4. Of John chapter 4. Okay. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob. Uh, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And so what we see here is that Jesus creates just this place uh, and really this opportunity for this Samaritan woman to, uh, to belong. And we see this one-on-one interaction. One of the things that Tony brought up uh, last week, which I think is fascinating, it's, it's always been one of the things that's been fascinating to me, is just that um, you know, we see Jesus speak and teach to large, large crowds. And, and we have record of that 16 times in scriptures. But the, the one-on-one conversations... The, the one-at-a-time conversations, we have record of that 40 times in Scripture. And so Jesus is having these one-on-one conversations that he's intentionally seeking out these opportunities to, to really just be intentional in, in the things that he's communicating one-on-one, not as much in, in large crowds. Now, he did that, but it was, it was less. And so, um, so here's this Samaritan who's, who's an outcast, and, and that's the reason why she's showing up at the well in the middle of the, of the day. But she's, and that tells us something. So, so the Samaritans were outcasts to the Jews. So she's, she's in a people that are outcasts, but she's not only an outcast because she's a Samaritan, but she's also an outcast to her own people. So she is an outcast 
of outcasts. Okay? And so it's not like it's just, hey, we're, you're, not, you're not a Jew, so you're, no, it's, you're, you're not a Jew and even your own people. You don't have a place within your own people. And so we see this woman, she just has no place whatsoever. And here we are at the, the well. And this is a place of shame and humiliation because it just reminds her of all the, the, all the failures that she's experienced in her life. And we're going to learn why that is this morning. But what we know is that here's a woman, and she's the most unlikely to receive this invitation to belong. So let's pick up the story in verse 9. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask, me, uh, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. For Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. In verse 13, he says, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so he offers her this living water. And this living water is what will truly satisfy uh, truly satisfy her thirst. And, and you know, last week, one of, the, one of the points is that she's stuck in the physical, and Jesus is wanting to work in the spiritual. And so he's, he's now going to move, in, move this conversation a step further, and he's going to begin to help her to see just how thirsty she is, and, and just how thirsty we are. We left last week going, okay, we're all thirsty. We're all thirsty in search of this living water. And what he's going to do this morning is he's going to connect the dots. He's going to communicate to her, this is exactly what you've been attempting to satisfy and quench your thirst with. That's, that's where we're going. He's going to help connect the dots because what she has done is the same thing that we all attempt to do is to fill that thirst and quench that thirst with other things other than Jesus. And so he's just going to point out what it, what it is for her. And so that's why he exposes what he exposes. And so this is important for us as we launch into this conversation. Jesus exposes what this Samaritan woman has been attempting to quench her thirst with. That's what what he's doing. He's exposing this thing that she's been attempting all this time to quench this thirst. We're all thirsty. We're all seeking. We're all trying to fill this void and quench this thirst but she's been attempting to do it in things other than, than Christ. Okay? Now that we've got a good framework of what has happened, let's begin. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. Have you seen, um, have you seen the pictures where... Um, where one person may see one thing and then another person sees something completely different. Have y'all seen those pictures? You know what I'm talking about? Here, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Okay, so here's a picture. And 
Maybe you see a vase. Or maybe you see two faces really, really close to each other. They are in each other's personal space for real. Right? And so or maybe, maybe you've seen one or the other. Maybe you, saw, you immediately saw both. But, but a lot of people will either see one or the other. And now that I've said something, maybe you see the other one. Here's another one. Uh, you look at this, and some people in the room will see a duck. And some people will see a bunny rabbit. Right? And, and so initially you saw one thing but maybe it's something else here's here's one more and then we'll move on one more now when you you look at this some of the older women in the room are like that's the younger me (laughs) and then some are like nope that's the real me (laughs) but but some of you you look at this and you see an older woman and and some of you you see a younger a younger woman but but the point is this is that we Maybe, maybe we see things differently. Maybe when we read a passage of Scripture like this this morning, um, maybe they're, they're, we're hearing different things. Maybe the, the same thing is being presented before us, but we're hearing different things. We're seeing things differently. And it's important for us to, to deal with that before we begin this conversation because I think, this is what I think, I think that there are people in this room that have made unfair assumptions about this woman. I think that that's true. I think that there's been unfair assumptions made that that maybe some people in this room have assumed that she's promiscuous or that she's adulterous. We question her morality because he says, hey, go get your husband. And we immediately go, okay, well, what has she done? And she's like, I have no husband. And we immediately assume that, you know, maybe she's a prostitute. Maybe she's just an adulterer. Maybe she's somehow her morality has led to the end of, why don't you have a husband? And we assume and place blame on her. That it's her fault that she's had five husbands. We're placing blame on her. It's important for us to understand that. Because let's this morning, because does the text say that? Does the text say any of that that I just said? Does it say that? He just says, go and get your husband. So let's just go this morning as we work our way through this this passage. Let's just go with what the text says. Can we do that? Can we just approach the scripture and let scripture speak for itself instead of presuming or projecting things onto scripture? So in verse 16, when he says, go call your husband and come here. I think tone is everything in this text. I think that... um, you know, it, one of the ways that we can get ourselves into trouble with, with lack of tone is, uh, is through texting. You know what I mean? Like, so one of the, like, I love texting. I love to be able to have a, just quickly communicate what needs to be communicated and be done. But we can get ourselves into trouble with texting. I can remember, uh, because you can't read tone. And so it can, that could be problematic. And there's been many times where I'm having conversations. Somebody will text me a question. I'm like, okay, this is an in-person conversation. Or can you talk on the phone right now because I need to give you a call? Because I'm not about to get myself in trouble texting you and then you reading the tone wrong. And like that's, I can remember uh, when texting was kind of new. And uh, I can remember my, my wife saying, I'm never texting my mother again. I'm never texting her again because she would be like, she's not talking to me again. And I'm like, well, what happened? She's like, nothing. I text her something and she took it as something completely different. You know, it's like, 
sounds good. We'll see you Saturday night, exclamation point. And she thinks she's yelling at her and she's mad she has to see her Saturday night. You know, it's like, but literally Suzanne would be like, my mom haven't talk, hasn't talked to me for days and come to find out. She just misread a tone in a, in a text. And we know what that's like. We've, we've, we've read that into text and we've communicated, we've had people that have read that into to our text. So here's my question. How do you imagine Jesus speaking these words to this woman? Have we been getting to know this woman and just working through this conversation? Do you hear an accusatory tone, uh, a harsh tone, a condemning tone, a critical tone? There are times in Scripture where it's clear. When Jesus tells the religious leaders, you're a brood of vipers, exclamation point. You don't have to wonder tone there. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear. But maybe we, we hear this and we, we project tone into this that's not there. And maybe that's because of something we've been taught in the past. Or maybe it's through life experiences that we've, that we've had. Or maybe just a, a, the view of God that we have. But, but maybe somebody in here, do you, do you hear a caring tone? Do you hear a gentle tone? Do you hear an empathetic tone? Do you hear a compassionate t- tone that Jesus is, is giving here? And, and why does this matter? Why am I taking so much time before we really get into this passage? Why am I taking so much time? Why does it matter? And this is why it matters. Because it tells us a lot about a lot of things. It tells us a lot about who we think Jesus is. It tells us a lot about how we think Jesus might interact with, with us, how he might interact with, with others, how we believe that he sees people on the outside that are different than us. It tells us a lot in how we perceive this to, to be. A.W. Tozer, which is a, a quote that you've seen and hear before and you will see again. But A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, why is that true? Why, why is that true? Why, why is it that whatever comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing to us? Well, this is why. Because there's a deep connection between our theology and everything else in our lives. There's a deep connection between what we believe, specifically what we believe to be true about God, and everything else in our lives. What we believe about God has huge implications on everything else. And it's important that we get this right because it affects everything. It affects the way we see ourselves and the way that we we see others. It affects the way we interact with God and the way we interact with, with others. And if we see Jesus as someone who's going around and simply calling out sin for the sake of embarrassing and shaming people, then guess what we're going to do? We're going to do the same. We're going to do exactly that. And so if that's what we believe is going on here, and I'm not saying, hear me this morning, I'm not saying that we don't ever, we should never address sin in in other people's lives, like believers' lives, our family, people that that God has given us influence and a platform in their lives. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. Scripture is clear. But I'm just saying we, we want to make sure that we're doing it the way God intended. We want to make sure that we check our heart, that we check our motive, that we're doing it the way that Jesus did it. And we want to make sure that, and that's reserved for, that's reserved for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we also want to expose sin for what it is, the way in which Jesus does that. Well, how does Jesus do it? How, how does 
How does he do it? What is the heart and the motive behind everything that Jesus does? I mean, I think we get a clear picture. If you just back up a few chapters in John chapter 1, what is, what is, what is Jesus about? So the word became flesh. He tabernacled among us and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Full of what? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What do we see in verse 16? And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. I, I think about when Jesus stands and he sees the people out scattered and he's looking out among the people. And this is, what, this is what Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 9. When he saw the crowds, he's looking out at all the people. And he had compassion for them. Compassion. Because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep with no shepherd. This is the heart of Christ. This is what's motivating this conversation that he is having with this woman at the well. And we can learn a lot from her response as to the tone that Jesus takes here. Again, I don't want to project or, or put anything on, but how does she respond? In verse 17, she says, the woman, it says here that, that the woman answered him and said, I have no husband. I have no husband. So, so you know what happened when Jesus had a harsh tone with the religious leaders? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. And they tried, and he would just exit out, exit stage right, and he would just, until the time was right. And then ultimately, they, they did. But, but the point is, is she, doesn't, she doesn't want to kill Jesus here. She, is, she doesn't get defensive about his question. She doesn't, she doesn't do those things. She doesn't look at him and say, well, you're just like the rest of them. You're just like everybody else who casts judgment. You're, you're just like everybody else that's the reason behind why I'm coming to the well in the middle of the day. And then just pack up and leave. She doesn't do that. What does she do? She answers the question. She's completely and totally honest with Jesus. Now stop and think about it. When somebody is critical or condemning to you, do you want to have an honest conversation with them? No. It's time for a knuckle sandwich. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have any, you're, you don't genuinely care about me. So why am I going to have a conversation and tell you my deepest, deepest darkest secrets? It's not going to happen. So if your motivation isn't genuine, if your tone is harsh and critical and condemning, well, bye. Like, I don't have time for this. I get this all the time from everybody else. I don't need you to do the same thing in this situation. But she's like, no. She's like, I have no husband. She's not evasive or de defensive. She's honest. That's what she does. Verse 18. And, uh, well, let's, let's finish that. He says, you're right in saying I have no husband. Then in verse 18, he says, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Okay, so what do we know from this text? What do we know from this text? We know that she's been married five times, correct? And we know that she's with somebody now. She has a boyfriend, but they're not, they're not currently married. Okay, would you all agree with that? So we know that to be true. Has she been divorced five times? Yes? No? We don't know. Has she been unfaithful five times? 
We, we don't know the answer to that. We, don't, we know what? She's had five husbands, and who she's with now is not her husband. I mean, there's the possibility that she has been divorced five times, but we don't know that. There's a possibility that every one of these, these marriages have ended because of her. Or it could be that every one of these marriages ended because of him. You, you know, it's real easy. In this culture, it was easy for a man to divorce a woman. Like, he really had, had, did, had to have little excuse or reason for, for divorcing a woman. But a woman couldn't initiate divorce. A woman couldn't, she couldn't do that. She couldn't facilitate that. Maybe, stop and think about this. You know, one of the, the biggest things in this culture was, was bearing children. And if a woman was infertile, then a husband may not see any value in that woman anymore because she couldn't give him an heir. And so maybe, maybe, maybe she, was, she was left or divorced because of something that was completely and totally out of her control, simply because she couldn't have kids. Do we know that to be true? No, but we know that that, that happened in that culture. Maybe, maybe some of these husbands or all of these husbands died. Maybe, maybe she lost husband after husband after husband to death. We don't know. But initially, we automatically presume that, that it's her. And we know this, that she's with a man now who is uncommitted to her. He's not all in. He's not fully committed. He's not willing to say, okay, I'm going to marry you because I want to care for you and provide for you. He's like, I okay, we'll just see how this thing goes. I'm going to leave my options open in case something better comes along. Here's what we do know. She's been married five times. And if you've been married to five different men, you've experienced a lot of pain. (laughs) A lot of suffering. A lot of heartache. But honestly, if if you've been through five failed marriages, you've experienced pain And you've experienced suffering on a different level. And so we know that the woman at the well is showing up at this well and she's a broken woman. She's a broken woman and Jesus is meeting her in her in-between. We don't know whether it's self-inflicted. We don't know if it's been pain that she's caused on her own or it's the cause of pain that's been done to her. Or if it's just the circumstances of life. But when she finds herself in the pit again, over and over and over again, here's what she's done. She's gone right back to what she's always known. She's gone back to the place of familiarity. This is where I can find some hope. This is where I can get my answer. This is where I can find the thing that, that I've always longed for within me. And so when this fails, I'm just going go, to go right back and try to, try to make it work this time. It's going to work this time. I mean, I know it didn't work last time, and I know I experienced all these things, but I'm going I'm to pursue this thing now. She spent her life desperately trying to fill that void. This time it's going to work only to be fine, left in the same situation of just being disappointed over and over and over again. Right? And so that's where we, that's where we find this woman. And then in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So what she sees is, she sees a man, she's like, okay, she realizes Jesus is no ordinary man. There's something very different about him. She doesn't realize that the Son of God is standing in front of her at this point in time. But she knows that, wait a minute, he knows a lot of things about me. 
that people don't know. Like he knows things about me. He's reading my mail. He's different. And so, uh, you know, I, I originally there were there was a time when I thought to myself, I thought maybe this was a diversion tactic. She shifts gears. So Jesus tells her that she's had five husbands and the man she's with now isn't her husband. And then she's like, okay, well, what about this? And she shifts gears. And at first, you know, I thought, well, maybe this is a, maybe this is a diversion tactic. I, you know, one of the things I, I know is I, when I'm around people I don't know, when I'm just having conversation with people, and Pastor Tony said this, Pastor Matt has said this, but I keep the fact that I'm a pastor close to my chest because people are different once they find out that you're a pastor. All of a sudden now, they're super spiritual. They want to have this spiritual conversation. They want to tell you about all the things that they've done and how they go to church and, you know, and have all this present themselves as being something or having this knowledge uh, that we can relate to the, you know, we're the same. And, and it's just a facade. It's just a lot of times it's just, hey, it's not really what's going on, but just trying to present themselves as being something. Here, Jesus just told her that she'd been married five times. Okay, I don't think she's trying to present herself as something because she realizes, wait a minute, I've been fully exposed. And so I'm not trying to present myself as being something. He knows everything about me. That's what we'll see as we, we continue through this passage. That he, she's going to go tell her, he knew everything about me. And so I can't hide behind, I used to go to church, or this is where, like this, we can't hide behind that. So he would see through, if he can see that she had five husbands, then he would see through her attempt to appear spiritual. What we do know is there's this long-standing rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans had a temple in, on Mount Gerahim. And so they said, this is the place in which we worship. But then the Jews, they believed that the temple that was in Jerusalem was the place that you worshiped God. And so there was this continual tension and really one of the most, theolo- most important theological questions of, of her day. And so she asked the question, which is the temple of true worship, yours or mine? And if you know I've been married five times, then I feel like you can answer this question. Agreed? And so she's like, well, all right. Well, I'm just going to see how much I can figure out since I got this guy who knows everything and he's clearly a prophet. And so let's, let's understand something here. She's not, she's not church shopping in this situation. She's not asking, should I move my membership to Bethlehem Baptist? She's really trying to figure out what's going on. She's trying to, she's trying to remember, remember we, we, we being in new covenant believers, I think we sometimes forget, but the temple or the tabernacle of God, that's where people went. That's where the presence of God was. And so, so when you think about the temple, think about the presence of God. And so essentially what she's asking is, she's asking, well, where is God? Which is a, which is a good question. It's a bold question because think about this. She's a Samaritan. She's always believed a certain way. She's believed that this is the, this is the place that it was on Mount Gerizim. Like the, this is what she what she believed. If Jesus answers in Jerusalem, then it's going to completely and totally shake up everything that she's ever known and everything that she's ever believed. And think about this, that she is now, I mean, she's an outsider, but if it's Jerusalem, then she's just back to being an outsider again. Because you know what the Samaritans couldn't do? They couldn't go into the inner parts of the temple. They couldn't do that. It would be like this morning. If you showed up here this morning and you were a guest, 
And we're like, we welcome you in the door. We have all the signs. Hey, we're glad you're here. And then we're like, but you're going to have to stay out here in the foyer. So sorry about that. So, I mean, you're welcome to listen to us worship. You maybe put your ear up to the door, but you're not welcome to come in and worship with us. That's reserved for us, for the insiders. And so she's, she's trying to sort through this. She's trying to sort through it. So we pick up in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay. So true worship isn't about a place. Jesus is going to just help her to see. He's just con- helping her to connect the dots. It's not about a place. And what he's saying is it's, he's saying that it's, it's recognizing that, that God is standing right before you. That he's standing right before you. He, she wanted to know where is God. And Jesus is going right here. Right here. And so Jesus is going to, in just a couple verses, and we're not going to get to it this week. We're going to save that for next week. But in just a couple verses, he's going to say, I'm he. I am the man. I'm the Messiah. I've been the long-awaited Messiah, the one that you've been been hoping for and waiting for. In in John chapter 14, verse 6, he's going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God has been moving closer and closer Closer and closer. And so he's now tabernacling, standing right in front of this woman at the, at the well. And eventually what he did by, by his being, by being crucified on the cross and resurrected from the dead and then sending his spirit. Now his spirit, the God of the universe, is now dwelling inside of his people. And so he's been moving closer and closer and closer. And he's saying, hey, salvation came through the Jews, but it's for all. It's for everybody. So yes, salvation came through the Jews, but it's for everybody. So for those of you who are on the outside, it's for you to invite you in and make a place for you to be on the inside. And so where you worship is not the deciding factor. How we worship, who we worship, that's what matters. And what we need to understand is that salvation isn't found in a place, but in a person. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. That we know. And that we can hang our hat on. And that's what he's saying. He's like, it's not about a place. I know that there was a time, but it's not about this temple or that temple. It's about me and the salvation that's been made available through me. So there's a few things I just want to unpack this morning in light of everything that we've talked about. Just a few things that I think will be very helpful for us. So here we go. Number one, how Jesus sees and treats the woman at the well should radically impact the way that we see and treat outsiders. That's important. How did Jesus treat her? How did, what was his motive? What was his heart? How did, he, how did he interact with her? Somebody who is despised by his people. An outsider that 
wouldn't have been welcome to even come into the inner parts of the temple. Like, how did he, how did he treat her? And here's, here's just something for us to think about. What is your attitude towards people that are radically different than you? I'm not talking about people that live in your neighborhood. That I'm talking about, are there people that you despise? People that when you see them, listen, the Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people. And Jesus pulled up a seat with this woman. Are there people, maybe there's a specific purpose, person, maybe it's a group of people, you're like, I just can't. They disgust me. They make me sick. Well, that's what your sin looks like before a holy and righteous God. And Jesus pulled up a seat to this woman. Is there, is there a person or a group of people that you're like, I hate them. I can't stand them. And I can give you examples, but I'm not going to. But I'm just saying, that's a real problem. That's a real problem. And for us to look past it and think that it's not and just say, no, we're good. Well, that's, that wouldn't be fair. That we need to do some self-exploration here. We need to look in the mirror when it comes to this. Jesus pulls up a seat with this woman. And she looks different than him. And she acts different than him. And she believes completely different than him. And it doesn't change anything. Because what was, what was Jesus' attitude towards her? Towards the outcast of the outcast. And understand something. She assumed, which tells us a lot about how religious people have treated her in the past... She assumes that he's going to be different. I mean, be just like everybody else. Sir, how is it that you would you talk to me? How is it that you? Because you know why she's gained that assumption? Because religious people have just walked on past her time and time and time again. They didn't see her in her need. They didn't come to her in this in-between place. They turned their head and pretended like she didn't exist and just kept on moving. And so he, she just assumed that he would do the same thing. Like, why do you, how is it that you are going to stop and talk to me? But he does. But he does. And the reason why that happens is, is that others may create barriers, but Jesus tears them down. Jesus tears them down. See, there's plenty of people, not just among the Jews, but there's plenty of people amongst her own her own people. That's the reason why she's there in the middle of the day. There's plenty of people who were willing to cast shame. There were people willing to condemn her. There were people willing to share their opinions about why she's in the predicament that she's, she's in. There's plenty of people like, and there's plenty of that people like that today. There's plenty of people that have an opinion about everything and are willing to cast shame. And, and we get on social media where we can do that real quick and real easy and hide behind a screen. But Jesus doesn't do that. He comes to her in this in-between place. See, few people are willing to sit down and have a conversation and have compassion on somebody that's different than them. But that's what Jesus does, and that's what he's calling us to do. That's what he's calling us to do. All right, secondly... Our own attempts to meet our greatest need will always fall short. Our own attempts to meet our greatest need will always fall short. See, there's a thirst that only Jesus can satisfy. 
There's a, we established last week, we're all thirsty. But there's, there's only, there's a thirst that only Jesus can satisfy. In all of her attempts to satisfy this thirst, in all of our attempts to satisfy this thirst, will fall short. And I don't know the reason for her five failed marriages, but in an attempt for self-sufficiency, when one ended, she moved on to the next one, thinking, okay, well, this is going to do it. This is going to satisfy that thirst. This is going to fill that void. This is going to fix the problem within me. And so in an attempt for self-sufficiency, she just went one after the other and after the other. And the truth is, is that unless our survival techniques, and techniques include surrendering to Jesus, then we will pursue the wrong things. We'll chase finding satisfaction in people. We'll, we'll chase things, thinking that those things are going to, to satisfy. We'll, we'll chase um, just the opinions of, of people. We'll, we'll positions. We'll, you name it, whatever it is. We'll go chasing those things in an attempt to satisfy this thing that's within us. But the problem is, is it can't and it won't meet our deepest need. That there's a need that we have that can only be filled by Jesus. And so we, we can go chasing all these things. And that's what she's done. That's what she's given her life to. But it's just this non-fulfilling, endless cycle of filling jars and emptying jars and filling jars and emptying jars and marrying and remarrying and pursuing and becoming disappointed and pursuing and become disappointed over and over and over. And it's this non-fulfilling, endless cycle. And the reality is, is that she longed to be known she longed to be loved. She longed to belong. She longed for all those things. She was just looking in the wrong places. And some of you are like, yes, I know. I, that's been my life story. And then Jesus, but God, right? And so that's, that's what's going on here. And so we can, we can put it like this. No existence is really living without Jesus being the source of our greatest need. We're not going to quench the thirst anywhere else. And Jesus comes to this woman and he comes to us in our most broken, tension-filled, in-between places. And Jesus got personal with this woman. He went straight at her thirst. He went straight at the thing that she was trying to, to fill this thirst with, to quench this thirst with. He went right at it, out of love and compassion, not shame and condemnation, because he loved her. And this is what he does with us. So i got a few questions for you to think about before we move on into our last question, our last point. What if God brought to our attention everything that we've done to attempt to get through this life? What is it? What do you return to over and over again, attempting to quench this thirst within you? What is it? See, sometimes we try our hardest to get out of the stuckness that we find ourselves in. But when we try to get out of the stuckness by pursuing something other than Jesus, it's going to, it's going to disappoint. It's going to let us down. It's going to fail us because... Jesus is the only one and the only way. He's the only one that won't fail. Next question. Would a conversation with Christ reveal that we've been looking in all the wrong places? 
Is there anything Jesus would bring to your attention as the greatest need that you have or desire that you have outside of him? Is there something that you think you need more than you need Jesus? What would he do if you and him were sitting at the well and you were sitting down and having a conversation? What would he point to? Maybe it wouldn't be five failed marriages, but he would point to something. So what is it? What, what would he point to in your life? What is it? And he doesn't, he doesn't slander or condemn her, but listen to me, he doesn't look the other way either. Praise God that he doesn't look the other way because our own attempts to survive threaten to keep us from truly living. That's, that's the truth and the reality of it. Our own attempts to survive, to quench our thirst in things other than Christ, keep us from truly living. All right, our last point. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. What does he say? He says, go get your husband. Go get your husband. We read this, and, you know, a lot of times, here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to put yourself in her shoes. Let's just step into her world, okay? So we show up in the middle of the day because we're trying to hide from everybody and everything because we don't want to have to face the shame and the guilt that we've experienced. We don't want to have to face the failures that we've, that we've experienced. We don't want to have to do those things. And so and he says, go, go get your husband. He exposes, he exposes her, but he does it with grace and truth. He, he doesn't bring it up to shame her, but he brings it up which is important for us to understand. Jesus exposes her life and her guilt and her shame and her need. Think about it like this, okay? So again, let's put ourselves in her shoes. This is like, this is one of those things that just gets you in your gut. It's like a gut punch. Out of nowhere, you realize, busted. You ever been there? Some of the teenagers in the room are like, yes. I know that all too well. My parents asked me a question, and the reason why they're asking me this question is because they know the answer, right? And you're like, am I honest or do I lie and dig a deeper hole? Or you, you see what's going on? But that feeling in that moment that's like, that gets you in the pit of your stomach. That feeling when someone finds out your darkest secret. When, when the thing that you've been keeping in the dark has now been brought out in the light for everybody to see. And it's been exposed. So uh, th- there, are, there are people in this room that you, haven't he- that you have a completely healthy understanding of the gospel. And so when I say this, you're going to be like, yes. So the gospel really, when, when we're confronted, like this woman is, when we're confronted with the reality of our sin and the graveness of our sin and the penalty for our sin, it is the worst feeling in the world. It's the worst feeling in the world. And at the same time, it is 100% the best and greatest feeling in the world. Because not only have you been made aware of the gravity of your sin, but you've also been made aware of the grace and the goodness of God and the forgiveness that's been made available through Him. And so it is, it is horribly terrifying to be fully exposed, but then like to know the grace and the goodness of God that he made a way. And so when, for those of you that have experienced that, you know that like you're completely exposed. And it's the worst thing in the world. It feels like it anyway. Some of you, you you've been completely and totally exposed, not just before God, but, but the thing that, that drove you to this place was left you exposed before the people around you too. And you know what it's like. And it's, it's the worst feeling 
and the world, but it turns out to be the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Right? Am I right? That's what the gospel is. Because that's the thing that brought you to a place where you surrender your life to Christ. So when we have a healthy understanding of the gospel, then it's able to do the right thing and the thing that God wants to accomplish in our life. And that's what, that's what Jesus is doing here. That's what he's doing here. Here's, here I want to address two different things as we end our time together this morning. Because I think that, see, my hope is, is that we all have a healthy understanding of the gospel. But I think that there, there are people in this room that land on one side, one far side, or on the other. And, and we don't embrace the reality and the truth. So here's what I think. I think there are a group of people in this room that think too highly of themselves. I think that there are a group of people in this room that are like, uh, like the man in Luke 18, where two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So here's a guy who is comparing himself to other people. And so he's comparing himself to others, and he can come to the conclusion that he's not that bad. Because we can always find somebody that's worse than us. And so we convince ourselves that we're really not that bad. But when we compare ourselves to a holy and righteous God, then we find ourselves in a different situation. Right? You know what would change that? I thought, man, this would be awesome. We could have some fun this morning. You know what would change that? Full exposure. Full exposure. That's what would change that. Because we can convince ourselves that we're pretty good, that we're not that bad. What if I told you that everything that you've ever done, we're going to put that up on the screen this morning. We're all just going to have a little fun this morning. All your deepest, darkest secrets. All the things that you've said, all the things you've done when you were in private. All the things that you did last week, all the things that you did last year, all the things that you did five years ago, ten years ago. Let's just put it up here. Let's have a gander. We're not that bad, right? Oh, wait, no. Not just what we've done. Let's go ahead and put up there what we thought. You know, when we're standing in front of somebody and the thoughts that we have about them, the things that we go home and we think, the conversations we have in our mind. Let's talk about the things that, that even maybe your, your parents don't know about or your spouses don't know about. You know, the things that nobody knows about. We're going to lay it up there. We'll have a good old time. That sound like fun? You're like, no. You know what? That whole Romans 3.23, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I get it. That's me. No need. Agreed? Because full exposure would change that thinking. And that's what Jesus does for this woman. And that's what Jesus wants to do for us. We're not good. We're not good. There's nobody in the room that's good. We compare ourselves to a holy and righteous God. Not somebody that's worse than us, not a Samaritan to convince ourselves that we're good. And so we have to have a right understanding. And that's terrifying. That, that leaves us in a place of, of vulnerability. Because I want you to think about whatever that thing is for you. If that was displayed, you would get up and you would walk out of here and you would never come back. That's true for every single one of us, me included. I'll be the first one. I'll drop the mic and head out the back door. It's terrifying to be, find ourselves in this vulnerable position, to be fully exposed before God. 
again, it's not to shame us, but so that we would respond correctly to him and the grace and the mercy that he offers. That's the purpose. The, the reason isn't to make you feel terrible, but to, that we would surrender and turn to, to him. And here's the other danger. The other danger is continuing to live in shame and guilt and condemnation. See, there's a group of people in the room. I don't, you know, when I started talking about the putting it on the screen, you're like, I don't need you to put that on the screen. I, 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 live, I live in that every single day. I live out that shame every single day. I think about the things that I've done or maybe the things that have been done to me. And I continually just live a life of shame and guilt and condemnation. The last thing I need for you to do is to put it on the screen because it replays in my mind every single day. Every day. To which I would say, Jesus sees you. He sees your wounds. He sees your scars. He sees the things that you've done. He sees the things that have been done to you. And he loves you. He sees the things that you're trying to hide. The things that you're afraid to deal with. The things that you're terrified that would be brought into light. We're just going to pretend like they don't exist. And he loves you. He sees you showing up at the well at high noon. And he loves you. He sees the mask that you put on. Even the mask that you put on maybe when you come to this place. The facades that we present to the world around us. And he loves you. See Romans 8.1 where it says, For there is no condemnation. That's for you. That's for you. You know, we've been singing, I don't know if you've realized or not, we've been singing this song uh, every single week throughout this series. It's called Greater Still. It's the last song that we sang. And I just want to, let's just look back at what we've been singing. My sin was deep. Your grace was deeper. My shame was wide. Your arms were wider. My guilt was great. Your love was greater still. And then there's a, there's a verse in here that I thought, when Colby sent this song to us and we were, I was listening to it, I was like, I wonder what people are going to think about that verse. I mean, this really is the woman at the well. This whole song is really her story. And it's really our story. But you know the verse where it says, we, we've been singing it. Y'all feel uncomfortable about it? You ran to me when I was naked. Is it naked? You ran to me when I was naked. We don't like that. You know what that is? Fully exposed. That's the Samaritan woman. It's the woman at the well. It's you. It's me. He ran to us when we were fully exposed before him. But the gospel, the next verse is, you clothed me in your righteousness. That's the gospel. He doesn't leave us in our nakedness. He doesn't leave us. in his, He makes a way. And we've got to understand that, that he endured shame and rejection so that we don't have to. And so, child of God, listen to me. You don't have to walk around in shame and guilt and condemnation. He bore all that so that you don't have to do that. He did that for us. And this is what I want to leave you with this morning. There's nothing more freeing than knowing that you are fully known and fully loved. There's nothing more, there's nothing more freeing than that. To know that you are fully known, 
fully exposed. There's nothing God doesn't see, and there's nothing that keeps him from loving you. He knows everything that would play up on the screen. He knows all those things. He's seen it, and he still came. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He knows it, and he did it anyway. This woman had five marriages. She was desperately searching for something that could only be found in Christ. She was desperately searching to belong. But belonging is found in Christ. And this kind of belonging, it changes who we are. It changes who we are. It changes us to the very core. It's belonging where we're deeply seen and deeply loved. And you know what flows? This, this is the thing. You know what flows out of knowing and experiencing this, knowing that you're fully known and fully loved? You know what flows out of this? A life of worship. So when Jesus is talking about, hey, this is, this is true worship, that's what naturally flows out of knowing this kind of belonging. It's a life of worship. Our lives become an altar of praise. And we now offer up our lives for Him. And we offer up our lives for Him, but also for others, that others may know this kind of belonging. That's what is naturally going to happen. So let's stand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. Father, we can't communicate just how grateful we are. Lord, forgive us for when we go chasing after other things trying to quench our thirst in things other than you. God, help us to God, help us to pursue you more than we pursue anything else in this world. God, thank you for for loving us enough to expose those things in us. God, we need to hear those things. And so just like the woman at the well, how you went straight to the heart of the thing that she was trying to, to pursue in order to find something that could only be found in you. I pray that you would press into us. You would expose those things in our heart and our lives. God, for your children in this place, I pray that this morning you would just light a fire in us. Thank you for the reminder of the gospel and what that means for us. To be fully known and fully loved. I pray that our lives would be an altar of praise. That we give our lives just to living for you and pursuing you and pursuing people. God, we want people to know this kind of belonging that we've experienced. And so, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this story and this woman, this nameless woman. God, thank you for, for the implications of what you've spoken to us this morning. Help us. Help us to respond in obedience in light of what you're saying.